Colossians 3 is where we're turning this morning, and verse 3, and possibly even verse 4. I speak very, very uh, aggressively, perhaps, thinking that we're going to treat both verses together, but we'll see how it goes. Verses 3 and 4 of Colossians 3 is in that vein or context of what does sanctif- how does the sanctification thing work then? If we're not so bound by rules and regulations and ordinances and restrictions, then how are we supposed to get our act together? How are we supposed to honor Christ and live circumspectly in this world, to live holy? There are so many things that are distracting to us and so many things that are over over our heads, so many things that are just seemingly overpowering us to uh, entice us or lead us into sin. So, okay, Paul, what are we supposed to do instead? He already said back in in chapter 2, don't give yourself to to man-made religion and self-abasement, all that kind of foolishness. Don't listen to persuasive argument as as reasonable, as powerful, as, as, well, persuasive as it might sound. Don't listen to that. Don't be led captive by things that that sound good, that appeal to your flesh, that make you uh, uh, think that you can do this by yourself. No, always cling to Christ. Always draw near to him. Always hold him precious in your thoughts and in your attitudes and your appetites and in your words, of course. It's a tremendous passage, and this is really the the transition period, transition section of the Colossian letter from the the big main doctrinal sections from chapter 1 and chapter 2, of course, and all the doctrine about Christ and who he is and his supremacy and sovereignty and, and what is this salvation all about and what did God accomplish in us or for us and what is Paul's whole burden as an apostle of Christ Jesus in relation to the church and what is the church supposed to be doing? All that we've looked at in these first two chapters now he's hinging into the the practical, not that theology isn't practical, it's inherently practical. That's why Paul spent two chapters talking about it in anticipation of what he's going to be saying here in chapter 3. But we, we get into the very practical section of uh, therefore consider yourself dead and the members of your body as dead to all these different sins and well okay I'm dead to that but what am I supposed to do instead? Well speak truth to one another, love one another, be peaceful with one another. We'll see that as we go along in chapter 3, and even more specifically than that, that's kind of a generic relationships that we have, but even more specifically, because how marriage reflects the relationship of Christ in the church, he talks about wives, subject be subject to your husbands, as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, don't be embittered against them. Children, obey your parents. Uh, fathers, don't exasperate your kids. Those kinds of things come up. And then even the relationship of slaves and masters, which we'll get into that. Don't, 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 uh, don't fret about all that stuff. But first... Let me read the passage, beginning at verse 20 of chapter 2, down through verse 4 of chapter 3. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Do not handle, nor taste, nor touch, which deal with everything destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with the commands and teachings of men, which are matters having, to be sure, a word of wisdom, and self-made religion, and self-abasement, and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, you also then will be manifested with him in glory. We've looked at those first two verses, actually all these preceding verses already, but he is contrasting back in verse 20 the the idea of 
of uh, you have died with Christ. And then, of course, uh, chapter 3 and verse 1, he has this idea, well, you've also been raised up with him. He's dealt with these ideas already in chapter 2 earlier on. And, but the, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ is so informative, but it's also so empowering to our daily lives now. We have died in Christ, because when Christ died, we died with him. We, and we've talked about what that means and how that identity uh, means that we're not subject to the things of this world anymore. We've been raised up with Christ. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. We have a whole new outlook on life. We have a whole new power, uh, uh, desire to, to please the Lord and the empowerment that, that comes to, I mean, it's not just we want to do it, we can do it based on the Holy Spirit's enabling. And so now he says here in, in verse 3, you died. He goes back to that idea. You died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. This connection between life, or excuse me, death and life. Usually it's, it's life and death, right? You live and then you die and you're done. That's what the world thinks. That's the, what the world celebrates uh, and, and is banking on, right? We, we live and then we're dying and we're no more because I don't want to be held liable or be judged for what I've done in this world. We want life and then death and nothing after that. That's not how it works. That's not how it works even for unbelievers. There is life now, earthly, physical life. There is a physical death, unless the Lord comes and takes us to be with him. But after that death, that physical death, comes life forever. Some to everlasting uh, glory with Christ himself, and some to everlasting damnation and condemnation. But life is what follows death. Here, for the Christian we died, the Christian died with Christ, being unified, being identified, and in Christ himself. And it says that our life has been hidden with Christ in God. We're not just dead. We're not just unfeeling zombies or, or walking around in this way. No, we have a life that is closely aligned with Christ. This, we can't live apart from him. Remember in John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, then you'll bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Wow, well, that's good news and dangerous news. Well, we need to abide in him. If he is the vine, we're the branches that come off of a, of a, a grapevine, is the idea, the analogy he's bringing there, then we need to be connected to him. We need to be abiding in his word. We need to, as we looked at these previous verses, we need to keep seeking those things that are above. We need to have in our minds his word. We need to have Christ in our, in our thoughts. We need to think everything in relation to Christ is Lord over these things. Christ is the uh, sovereign over these things. Christ is supreme and he is, he is comprehensive. Remember, we studied in, in chapter 2, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Trying to discern truth, trying to discern uh, uh, other categories like goodness and beauty, for example, are very difficult, impossible, apart from Christ. Christ is that standard. Christ is that basis for anything in our, in our world. And you think, how, why should Christ, why should Jesus have all this preeminence? Well, we studied that in chapter 1. He is the firstborn. He is the image of the invisible God. All those wonderful truths that we recognize back there. And so we want to recognize that our identity, our very life, is bound up with Christ himself. When, when Paul says here this, this death in life, he has the idea of, of not so much a physical death and, and physical life, because 
you know, if you checked your pulse, you're, y'all are still alive. You haven't died. Most of us haven't had that near-death experience or having died and then been resuscitated or something like that. He's not talking about that. Just as just as uh, he wasn't back in chapter 2 when he talked about baptism, he wasn't talking about the water baptism. Water baptism pictures the baptism, the immersion, the... the um, the joining together of the believer with Christ himself. So just as there wasn't water in that baptism talked about in chapter 2, he's not talking about a physical death here, although the spiritual death and life that we experience will inform that physical resurrection. It's not entirely separate. It won't be, ultimately. Right now it is because we are renewed, regenerated spirits still living in this in this flesh. We need our flesh to be resurrected, just like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's what we yearn for. That's what we long for. That's what we earnestly expect, the resurrection of the body. But in the meantime, we want to honor Christ in our spirit. We want to be oriented toward him, keep seeking the things above, set our minds on things above, and these things. He is speaking of a spiritual reality, and he's even with this idea of your life has been hidden with Christ and God, we have no life apart from Christ. It, it is hidden with Christ. It's not like I, I've been hidden uh, with with uh, you know all my all my wealth. You see the news recently about this big ship that was found buried next to the Pharaoh and a Pharaoh in Egypt, and of course this ship was and all the all the supplies and, and armaments and maybe some servants as well buried with the Pharaoh because you're going to need that stuff. You don't need anything. You can't take anything with you. You can't even send it on ahead, earthly speaking. Now, you can send things ahead to heaven, First Timothy 6. talks about the rich. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but in God. Um, how does it go? To, to uh, um, lay up treasures in heaven. Jesus also has that idea in, in Matthew 6. But, but sending things on ahead that way. Whereas we're so busy about gathering stuff to us in this life, and Paul says, don't. Don't set your mind on things on this earth. This is perishing. Just like when you have rules about food and drink and, and Sabbath days, these are destined to perish with the use. Well, we honored the Sabbath day. Now it's over. What are we going to do tomorrow? You can live for, for six days apart from Christ, but on the seventh day, we're, we're Christians. No, that's not what he says. You are Christ. Live that way. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You have been changed. You've been transferred out of that domain of darkness, right? Colossians 1, 13, and, and brought into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Why are we going to act like we are still in the world? You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. This wonderful reality is, is talking about the spiritual death, this death at the moment of salvation, that we died with Christ to the elementary princes of the world, the, the, what he speaks, speaks about in Romans chapter 6 as well, of the death and burial and resurrection, that we're dead to sin. And even into chapter 7 of Romans, which I, I maybe we ought to look at that, because it does inform this, this passage quite a bit. Romans chapter 7, it starts with a, a rather awkward illustration, but it, it speaks uh, truth because of what, what that illustration is showing. It talks about a death, a death in a, in a marriage situation. Uh, chapter 7 of Romans says, Don't you know, brethren, uh, that the law is master over a person as long as he lives? Now, why are we talking about the law? Well, it's because that's what these false teachers in Colossae were talking about. Laws and regulations and, and rules and you can't do this and you must do this and you have to do it twice on Sunday. And no, you've died with Christ to this this 
these laws. And then he gives the example in verse 2. A married woman has been bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. You think, what in the world? Why are we talking about that now? Because when, when you are married and your, your husband is alive, your husband and wives are alive, wife is alive, then you're married. But when there is death, that's why part of the marriage covenant, marriage vows, is till death do us part. Or like Jesus says in Matthew 19, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Well, death separates, but we don't want to be part of that separation. God is, is the Lord of life and of death. And when death happens, the covenant of companionship between a man and woman is broken. And so if she went off to, to marry somebody else, that's, that's perfectly uh, fine. She's not bound to that a husband uh, still loves him, appreciates him, and so forth, but moves on into a new relationship. And so the illustration there informs this, this application then, Romans 7, verse 4. So, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. When Christ died, we died to the law so that you might be joined to another. Well, who's, who, are we, who are we married to now? To him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. We can go on and read in that passage, but he's the, the big idea is there that we have died. We're not any longer subject to those rules and regulations. We are on a different basis. With this beginning of the school year and all the different things that are going on with, with schedules and, and just a new ex, new experience, even if you're homeschooling, there's there's a different kind of feeling in the air, right? With all the books are coming out and home and uh, workbooks and, and you're going to have to get up early. And yes, you do have to wear regular clothes, not PJs all day. And I mean, all these restrictions and regulations, just onerous. And yet, I remember when I, I was public school all the way until college, and on those certain days either when I had a dentist appointment or when you graduated. Wow. Uh, I was no longer subject to the rules and regulations and schedule of, you know, be there. Our, our high school started at 8.05. Be there at 8.05. Be in your seats at 8.05. You have five minutes between classes. You've got to go to your locker, do all these things. You've got to do this. When you do that, you've got to do this. And all these rules and regulations. But when my mom, for example, picked me up from the right outside the high school door and we went to the dentist and I look at my, my schoolmates walking through the hall to their class, which I should be in that class. I, I'm enrolled in it, but I'm going to a different place. Or when you're graduated and you see, and then the teacher says this, okay, all you students, you need to go. And I'm not a student anymore. I'm done with this. It's the same kind of idea. When we have died with Christ, we're no longer subject to those rules and arrangements and, and stipulations. You can think of it in terms of an employee situation, employer-employee situation. I no longer work for this company. I'm not subject to their rules and requirements and regulations and uniforms and, and protocol and paperwork and all. I'm, I'm out of it. There is a wonderful freedom that we have. But okay, what are you going to use that freedom for? You, you might be aware our name of our church is Liberty Bible Church. It takes uh, some uh, import or some meaning from Galatians 5.13 that says, You were called to freedom, brethren, or liberty, but don't, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's Galatians 5.13. We use our liberty. We've been freed from these things, but we don't say, Oh, I can do whatever I want now. Well, here's the thing. Yes, you can do whatever you want, as long as you are seeking the things above, 
setting your minds on things above, identified with Christ, other things that are, are spoken of. In order to know God's will in certain uh, you know, uh, specific areas, we need to know God's purpose and his will in the, the stated points of his word. And that is, he wants everybody to be saved. You need to come to a recognition Christ is Savior, Christ is Lord. There's no other way unto heaven, unto, unto the Father, but through Christ. God wants people to be saved. God wants people to be growing, not just saved and, and, and established on, on Christ, but growing in Christ, becoming more like Christ, becoming transformed in the renewing of our minds. He want, We'll see it in later in chapter 3, the renewal that we have, the continual renewal that's going on. He wants believers to be suffering for the gospel. Take up your cross daily and follow me. He wants us to be, uh, not uh, because we deserve it in, in our own attitude and bearing, but because of our representation of Christ, he wants us to be suffering in this world, to receive persecution. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake, not because we're being jerks, but because we're, we're giving a message of condemnation and yet life, only life through Christ. Uh, he wants us to do some other things as well, but when we are, are saved and, and, and sanctified and, and suffering and some other ideas that we could talk about, then when we have desires and wants, we can trust, we can have great confidence that we want what God wants in our lives. We can't want things that are contrary to God's word when everything else in our life is oriented toward him. And all of a sudden we want this thing out in left field. Well, left field's over here. We, we can't want things that are contrary to his will and word when we are totally submitting. That was another S. Totally submitting to, to God's will. Here, we have died. We're no longer subject to those rules and regulations, but how are we going to live? We're living as if we are connected with Christ in God. When we talk about life, it is that physical life or the spiritual life, but also we can talk about life in terms of, uh, you know, baseball was his life kind of a thing. Or, you know, he, he lived to whatever. Uh, we can talk about essentially the orientation of somebody's whole being, that how they spend their time and their money and, and what kind of relationships they have and what kind of books are on their shelves. Where are you investing? Where are you spending your life? Here he says, your life has been hidden with Christ in God. Where is Christ in your life? Where is Christ in your words? Where is Christ in your uh, plans and purposes and the desires that you have? Uh, one person was, was uh, talking uh, we heard somebody talk about last night uh, in a video by Carl Kirby, actually, and uh, he was speaking about uh, a lady who was on a rafting trip down the Grand Canyon. Everybody in their in their rafting crew were Christians except one guy, but she was going around witnessing, evangelizing each person, not because she wanted them to be saved. Most of them had a profession of faith, except this one guy that did come to faith uh, in, in the, during the course of that trip. But she wanted to share the gospel with other Christians so that they, perchance, would be excited enough to share the gospel themselves, to speak about Christ to others. She had a particular burden because one of her children, one of her daughters, was not walking with the Lord, was not trusting him. She wanted Christians to be excited about Christ by talking about him and encouraging him in that way. Our life has been hidden with Christ in God. This idea of hidden or hiddenness can carry a couple ideas. One is that we are 
safe and secure in his arms. We are safe and secure in his hand. John 10, uh, Jesus says that we are with him, and not only him, we are with the Father. We are uh, connected with him. Uh, John 10, 17 through 30, really this idea, or 27 through 30, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish ever, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This idea of being in Christ's hand is this idea of being hidden with him. Verse 29 says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And this, this clincher, I and the Father, are one. So if we're connected with Jesus and we're connected with the Father, we're connected with God, the Father, and God, the Son, we, there's, there's, there's certainty, there's security in that. There is a safety. There is, it says here, uh, uh, never perish ever. There's the enduring quality, the, the permanence of our salvation. Uh, not so much what's well, us persevering in the faith, but more God's persevering spirit and love and faithfulness in and through us. Uh, throughout the scripture talks about this, I this idea of hiddenness. You remember, uh, many of us are intimately aware of this big ship-like building just down the road here, the Ark Encounter. And one of the big things that, that the Ark Encounter celebrates is that just as Noah and his family had to enter the Ark to be saved, so we need to enter the Ark of Salvation, Christ Jesus himself, and be saved. There's that idea back in Genesis chapter 7 that Noah entered the Ark and Yahweh closed it, closed that Ark, behind them. They were hidden in that ark. They were saved. They were saved through the storm that was going to come upon the earth and destroy every living thing, everything that had the breath of life in its nostrils. And God did it because he's holy and righteous and he will not allow sin to go on like that. We need to be hidden with Christ just as known as family were. We are treasured people. I mean, part of being hidden, you don't hide things that are just average stuff. You hide the, the precious things, the, the treasured items. That's what God regards us. Isn't that tremendous? That he regards us as treasured, precious things. Uh, Titus uh, chapter 2 and verse, I don't know, 13 or 14 talks about uh, this, this precious treasure that God has in us. He values us. And again, not because he sees something good in us. The only thing good that he sees in us is Christ himself. He made us in his image, yes, but we have violated that. We've con gone contrary to that. But now we've been renewed, and we've been renewed according to Christ. And when God the Father looks at us, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a good thing. Because we don't want God to see us in our nakedness, you know, clothed in our own righteousness. Well, uh, we'd be embarrassed and shamed every time. But when Christ, when God looks at us, he sees the Lord Christ. So this idea of hidden or being hidden with Christ has the idea of security and safety, but also has this idea of concealment, that you don't hide things that, that you want on display, right? You, you, but you conceal certain things. It, it, it's kind of contrary. Why, why are we hidden? Why are we concealed from other people? Well, it's kind of the nature of the thing. The world is celebrating all these things, and when we are well, out of phase with the world, the world almost ignores us, not quite ignores us, hates us, can't understand anything about us. What are we, what are you guys, do? how dare you to tell us how we ought to live or, or how we ought to do this or what we ought to believe? That you're, you're oppressing me. I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to help you. This, this is danger. This is the pathway of death and destruction you're on. This is Christ. This is the answer. This is life over here. 
but the Christian is out of phase with the world. We are concealed from, we, the world can't understand us. It can't. It cannot fathom the realities of Christ and righteousness and faith and self-control. I mean, that's kind of what got, um, was it Herod uh, Paul was talking to back in Acts 25 or 26? And Paul was talking about self-control and the judgment to come. And Herod says, well, what's all this nonsense about? And Paul wanted to convince him to be a Christian. Well, we are concealed. The, the world does not, not understand us. But even the false teachers that are troubling the church in Colossae, they didn't understand it. They were trying to lead the Christians away from this being sta standing firm on the gospel and on Christ. They had a persuasive argument that would draw people this way. They were trying to take them captive or take them into captivity through philosophy and into deception. They were judging, remember chapter 2, verse 18, verse 16, they were judging the Christians based on what they did do or what they didn't do. They were defrauding them of their prize, verse 18 says. Uh, they are teaching these things. They're teaching the commands of men, and they're and it seems like, whoa, that, that's pretty serious stuff, and that's, that is pretty sensible and reasonable. But it is self-made religion. It is self-abasement, severe treatment of the body, and it's in has no value against fleshly indulgence, or it can't propel us in sanctification. These things are contrary to God's God's plan and purpose and provision. Paul says very similar things in First Corinthians chapter uh, one and two. He says a natural man does not accept the, the the depths of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined or appraised or evaluated. The world doesn't understand Christians; never will, until the world or individual members of it repent and turn to Christ. Or if they don't do that, when Christ comes, and every mouth will be made silent. Let all mortal flesh be silent. We bow down before the Lord Christ. We honor him. Might be against our will, a lot of the unbelievers, but they will bow down to the Lord Christ. They will accept him as, acknowledge him, not accept him for salvation, but acknowledge him as Lord and Savior of all things. But right now it is foolishness. It's hidden. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. It's worthy of scoff and shame, you know, shameful, uh, the shame from the world upon us. But hey, Paul says, I didn't read it in 2 Timothy 1 or as our opening scripture reading, but Paul says to Timothy, do not be ashamed of me, his prisoner, the, Lord, the testament of the Lord, or of me, his prisoner. He says, stand firm, almost all of 2 Timothy. Stand firm, be bold, preach the word. Uh, you're going to go to the grave, you're going to go to the cross or, or some uh, martyr's death just like me. I expect, you know, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, I've run the race. This is done. I know there is a great crown of righteousness laid up for me and not for me only, but all those who love his appearing. This is done. But you stand firm. This is what Paul is saying all throughout Colossians. Stand firm on the gospel. Don't be taken aside this way or that way. Your life has been hidden with Christ in God. It's a double blessing here. With Christ, the second person of the Trinity, triune Godhead, Christ himself who's accomplished salvation, God the Father who had purposed salvation, who designed it, who made it uh, possible for us to be saved. Our life is connected with both of those individuals. And again, I've mentioned this before, but this Holy Spirit does not really play a significant role in this letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Colossian church. It's not to say the Holy Spirit has nothing to do. Uh, and you can you can see him all throughout it. Usually we, we describe it like the God the Father has has purposed or planned the, the 
the salvation uh, Christ the Son has accomplished it or or obtained it or purchased salvation and then Christ or excuse me the Spirit of Christ the Holy Spirit then applies that that salvation to us he is the seal of our inheritance and so forth but Paul doesn't really talk about the Holy Spirit so much in this letter he talks about it a lot in other places as well but but here he wanted to focus specifically on Christ because that's where the false teachers were were focusing their attacks. Christ is a good teacher and all kind of thing. He, he's one of many created beings that as, as, as we approach God the Father or God, then we pass through these angels and all these different things and Christ himself, of course, but then we get to God. And Paul says, nothing doing. Christ is God. He created all those angels that you worship, the worship of angels. How foolish is that? Worship Christ. Establish your life on him. Your life is in Christ. It is hidden with Christ in God. There is that great platform that we have hidden in the sphere of God or in the in the presence of God. We have been brought right near to God the Father. We can approach the throne of grace. Wow, and find mercy and grace to help us in time of need. We don't need to shrink back. We don't need to say somehow I'm not worthy to enter. Well, you're right you're not worthy, but in Christ you have been made worthy. Draw near boldly to the Father and draw near Without hesitation, without wondering, I don't think I've done enough today. How early, you know, what time is it? I've still got so many good works I need to do today in order to be accepted by God. Are you in Christ? Are you trusting him? Are you wanting to live for his glory? Then you will live for him. You can't make your salvation any more secure than it already is if you are in Christ. It's a big deal for these Colossian Christians. It's a big deal for us. Who get anxious? We, we somehow sometimes lack assurance of salvation. Paul is saying here, be assured, if you're in Christ, if you have turned from your sins, if you acknowledge Christ who died in your place, died a sinner's death, even though he was perfect, he's God himself. If you do these things he describes in terms of salvation, entering into salvation, you don't need to fear. You're in him. Now you need to persevere in these things. You need to grow in these things, transform, set your mind, all these things. But it, it's not because we're trying to earn our salvation. We're trying to work it out. Are we basing our relationship with God on our works or on Christ's work? That's where it is. That's where it really matters. You died, Paul says, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4, I think we can, we can uh, work through this quickly here. When Christ, who is our life? Again, our life is hidden with Christ. Well, where's Christ? Earlier we said he's in heaven, right? He is above. We need to set our minds on things above where Christ is or keep seeking the things above where Christ is, uh, seated at the right hand of God. Christ is in heaven, and yet uh, there is a time coming when he will not be in heaven any longer. He's going to come to the earth. When he, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. Our life is totally uh, uh, consumed with, saturated in Christ. And this, this verse, verse 4, has... Uh, uh, not an if-then, but a, a when-then. When that happens, then this is going to happen. When the reality of Christ, when the person of Christ comes down to earth, which is recorded in Revelation 19, when he comes as Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords, to judge the earth and judge angels and demons and all this kind of thing, then we also will be manifested with him in glory. Those who are uh, dead in Christ or asleep in Christ will come with him. Those who are, al are alive and remain when Christ comes will be gathered up with him. 1 Corinthians 15 teaches all those the, those saved believers will be coming with him plus the other angelic uh, powers when Christ comes in the power of, of the Father and with the angels of, of wow, I mean, that's going to be a tremendous, better than any human parade you've ever seen and you're going to be part of it 
if you're in Christ, coming with the Lord Jesus Christ to earth, when he is manifested, then we also will be manifested or revealed or, or we will appear with him in glory. Christ is our life. Christ is not just our life is hidden with Christ, but our, he is our life. Remember how Paul says it in, in uh, Philippians 1? Um, yeah, Philippians 1, he says, to, for me to live is Christ. And he, well, that's kind of a very reductionist thinking. Well, that's what it is. I live for Christ. I, his, it's his power in me. I, to, for me to live is Christ, and even to die is gain, or I don't know what translation says, to die, well, even that's better yet. For me to die in this physical reality and go to be with Christ, oh, man, that's what I long for. That's what I, I want because he is my life. Again, we can go back to the idea of, you know, baseball was his life. When, if your life is totally consumed with, with something that's not Christ, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be frustrated, disappointed. You're going to be, well, led captive. You're going to be... Um, persuaded and, and things that are wrong according to Christ. But when we are recognizing Christ as our life, he is our life, then that gives us purpose, that gives us meaning, that gives an orientation, that gives us a bearing for how do we how do we decide this? You know, what kind of food should we eat? It's not because we want to, we, we regard food as somehow making us closer to the Father, but we we want to honor Christ and, and how we manage our lives. How should we spend this money? Should we invest in this thing? Should we spend our money this way? Should I do this job, that job? Uh, it also gives us um, a reason for existence. We're not just living for ourselves. We're not just living for the next paycheck. We're not just living for the next weekend. We're not just living for the next whatever. We live for Christ. We are His. And whether we eat or drink or we don't do it, we're the Lord's. We want to honor him. We want to bear fruit for him. We are uh, totally consumed with him. Remember back in the Old Testament, a couple examples maybe uh, of how a a life, both an orientation of life, but even the life itself, physical life, is bound up with with somebody. Remember how, uh, I mean, it takes up a good, good portion of Genesis history, the whole drama of Jacob and his 12 sons and Joseph being sold into slavery and, and then... Don't ever get married to more than one woman because it just partiality is bad. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, but uh, you have a favorite wife and then you have favorite sons, and it's not good. Don't be partial in your parenting. Jacob was partial. He had two favorite sons, Joseph, and then Joseph died, apparently. Then Benjamin was the son. Jacob's whole life was bound up together with Benjamin, the son of his favorite wife, this, you know, two sons, the other son died, so now it's Benjamin upon all his hopes. Uh, Jacob had said all his hopes are upon him. So when Judah, all, you can read, this is tremendous history going on, but in Genesis 44, when Judah, in captivity in Egypt, talks to Joseph, unbeknownst to them, he didn't know it was Joseph, their brother, talking about Jacob and this, this son Benjamin, Judah says, all these names, you'll figure it out. Therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, the lad, Benjamin, is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Jacob's whole life was bound up in Benjamin. Where's your life bound up? Is it in Christ? Is he your life? Would would you be considered uh, a Christian, not just because, you oh, you get dressed up and come to church on Sunday. Are, do you love him? Do you speak about him? Do you value his word? Do you come to his word as if it's, well, daily bread? Because it is. I mean, you can fill your stuff up like I did with pancakes this morning, but you need the bread from heaven. You need God's word for 
for instruction for daily daily life. Another example <clears throat> is when David David committed adultery with Bathsheba, had a son. The son was going to die. And David's life was bound up in that child's life. And he prayed somehow God would have mercy upon the son. Well, God didn't. God judged the son, even though David was the, the one who sinned. Uh, David's concern, David's life was bound up in that child. When the child died, of course, you can read about that in Second Samuel 12. If Christ is our life, then we are seeking the things above. We're setting our minds on things above. We're valuing, we're evaluating, putting, making value judgments on what we could do, what we should do, what we want to do, based on what Christ wants in our lives. He is Lord. When it says when Christ is revealed, when our life is revealed, when, when our life is manifested, we live now in this present age wanting to glorify Christ so that in that end time when Christ comes, we could hear those wonderful words that we don't deserve, but based on his work in us, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. That's what we want to hear. We want to conduct our lives right now so that in that day when our life is manifested, Christ is here, then we honor him and we glorify him and we enjoy the favor of our master. Again, it's always you have to qualify these things because it's not based on our performance, but it is it's based on what Christ has done, but it's also work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who is at will, both to will and God is at work, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We want to, based on what Christ has done, live to honor him. Second Corinthians 5, 9, we make it our ambition, whether at home in the body or absent in the body, to be pleasing to God, to do things that are honoring to him, the things that that uh, are that bring glory to him. Matthew 5. Uh, is it 18, 16, 18, somewhere in there. Let your light shine before men that men may see your good works and glorify not yourself, but your Father who's in heaven. Bring glory to him. He says here in verse 4, when Christ is manifested, in that end time, when Christ comes and every eye will see him, even those who hate the thought of it, who's this Christ? I don't want to worship Jesus of Nazareth. I don't want to bow down. I am my own God. I am my own man. And no, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When Christ is manifested, and it won't be a questionable thing. Uh, some people would say, you know, Jesus is here. He's in Idaho, or he's in, in Iowa, or he's walking around in Thailand. We, we see how, you know, I've heard stories of this miracle maker. No, when Christ comes, everybody's going to know. It will take everybody by surprise. Now, why by surprise? Revelation 19. Can, can't you, it's written. It's almost a play-by-play. -play. What, is, what is going to happen in that future time? And yet people hate it, hate the thought of it. We don't want Christ here. Get him out of here. We don't want his rule and his reign over us. No, when he appears, there's no power of earth or of, of the demonic forces that is going to shut that down. When Christ comes, he is supreme. He is sovereign over all. And when he appears as certain as, as it's going to be, our life also will be certainly manifested. Again, there's that, that security, that safety, that, that confidence that we have in Christ. Notice it says here, we'll be manifested with him. We're not manifested apart from him. People aren't going to celebrate, oh, there's that guy over there, there's that lady over there. Uh, he's, she, he, he's such a fine fellow or whatever. No, he's a Christian. He's connected with Christ. He comes in the, in the power of Christ himself. And so there's, there's no question where did you get all your smarts? You remember when the, the apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin and they said, these guys are just ordinary, untrained men. But they recognized that they had been with 
Jesus. They've been trained by him. And they have the Holy Spirit of Christ indwelling them, just like we do. And so that is our claim to fame. It's not other, other things that we could glory in. Speaking of glory, that's the last phrase here in verse 4. Uh, we have, we will be manifested or displayed or put on display in glory. Now the question is, whose glory is this? And what is this glory? Glory is just overpowering uh, uh, holiness, righteousness, power, authority, uh, uh, perfection, beauty. Uh, wow. Glory. That's what we want. You know, Romans 2 speaks about the glory that will come to those who, um, to Romans 2 verse 7, uh, to those who by perseverance and doing good deeds seek for glory and honor and immortality, what will they get? Eternal life. You think, well, we shouldn't be seeking glory and honor and immortality. Well, really? The contrast that Paul brings us in verse 8, uh, those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Wait a minute. I'd rather go for that glory and, and honor and immortality thing because going after selfish ambition and disobedience and uh, you know, disobeying the truth and disobeying righteousness, I don't want to be characterized by that. I want to be characterized by that uh, which is full of God, glory, honor, immortality, and I'll receive eternal life knowing God the Father himself. The desire for glory is a good thing. Sadly, we find glory and meaning and life and purpose and orientation in things which are not just secondary to Christ, as far to the nth degree away from Christ. If it's not Christ, it's nothing. And until we realize that, it's not to say that we can't enjoy food and, and a good sunset and those kind of things, but that is a way for us to glorify Christ. It's not finding meaning and identity. You know, we're sunset chasers. We go around all the world looking for the best sunset. Really? What kind of a wasteful life is that? I mean, you can enjoy a good sunset or a sunrise if you're of that kind of orientation. Uh, you know, those come in the morning, the sunrise. Anyway, uh, but we honor Christ. We give thanks to him. We Everything, food and drink, we're going to share food together. It's all a way to give thanks to Christ who is a gracious giver of all good things. All glory be to Christ our King. We sang that recently, that song. So anyway, so whose glory is this? We talk about the glory of God. The glory of God the Father. Uh, we boast in hope of the glory of God, Romans 5 and verse 2. We have, Colossians 1 talks about the glory of his might or the might of his glory. Uh, other things we could talk about, the glory of God the Father, which is true. We can talk about the glory of Christ because we are with him in glory. The glory of Christ is on display. It was hidden, of course, concealed in human flesh in the incarnation, and yet at that transfiguration time when, when it's almost like the veil, like Moses, the veil that was put on because of his, the glory that he had was, was diminishing. The, the light and the, the, the uh, illumination that he had from his conversation with God was diminishing. He put that veil on. But Christ took the veil off, and Matthew, or excuse me, Peter, James, and John saw, and of course Moses and Elijah saw the glory of Christ. We can see his glory that is coming. He's coming in the, in the power, the glory of God the Father, but it's Christ himself who has that. I think he, here he's talking about the glory of believers. And you think, whoa, what? Where, where's our glory coming from? Well, it comes from Christ, but we can reflect his glory, his perfection. Um, Romans 8, for example, if we suffer with him, uh, we want to do that so that we also may be glorified with them. We will be glorified. He says, I'm, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to com be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Romans 8, verse 18. 
And it even says in verse 21, the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We want glory. If you were to consider, and we'll, we'll end with this idea, the, the order of salvation called the Ordo Salutis in Latin, if you like Latin, but uh, it, it's, it speaks about the order of salvation. What, what is the progress of, how, do, how does salvation come to us? personally, individually. And the, I'll just say it this way, the last of the, the stages of salvation, including things like justification, sanctification, the last thing that we're looking for, the, the consummation of that is glorification. The glorification, the resurrection of the body, the reunion. If, if people have died in Christ and the soul spirit is separate from the body, body is decaying you know, from dust to dust kind of thing. But when you have the resurrection body reunited with the soul, spirit, the heart, soul, mind, strength, all those things, that is the glory that we look forward to. Here, Paul is saying, there is that day coming when your life, which is bound up in Christ, and you're living right now in this world in our fleshly bodies, but we want to honor Christ in these things. Keep persevering in that because there's a day coming when that glorification will be ours. It will be sealed. It will be consummated, delivered to us. We will have, well, like he said in Roman in Colossians 1.27, we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. We have something that is coming to us, and that's how we orient our lives right now. And that then informs how we're supposed to live. How are we supposed to live in this life? If, if we have that expectation, we will enter, we, we share in that glory, we share our life, or our life is hidden with Christ and God. How ought we to live? How will this salvation affect our relationships? Because that's really the examples, the, the commands, the instructions, the, the exhortations he gives us beginning in verse 5 and following. How, do, how does this Christianity thing affect our relationships? Come back next time to find out more. Just read ahead, beginning in verse verse five. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the salvation that we have. Man, when you when you save, when you do something, you do it completely. You do it comprehensively. You exhaust all options and and ways to to uh, to affect it. We are so grateful that when you brought Israel out of Egypt, you blessed them. I was going to say you blessed their socks off. They weren't wearing socks, but you blessed their sandals so they never wore out, and you blessed their feet so they didn't get all blistered and, and infected and everything. You blessed them in that way. You brought manna to feed them through the wilderness. You brought water to drink. You brought a shade even during the day. You brought leaders. You brought folks who would care for them. You brought so many wonderful, wonderful blessings, and then you brought them into the land, and you gave victory as they trusted in you. How much more Complete is the salvation you have given to us. Freedom from sin, a new heart, a regenerated heart, your spirit indwelling us, the truth of your word uh, encouraging and, and instructing us, and each other in the church to encourage one another toward love and good deeds, and, and lots more. We thank you for the, the expectation that you are saving us, that your, your justification, your sanctification, the glorification we look forward to empowers us and inspires us to live a life that says, thank you, praise the Lord. God is good. God is near to us. God is active in my life. We pray that each soul here would be resting wholly in you. We, we have nothing to be uh, boasting, of, boasting of in ourselves, but we boast in what Christ has done. He is our life. He is the reason we have for living in this world and the only reason we have uh, hope for living in eternity is Christ. Please help us to celebrate him. Please help us to speak of him as we have time today and through the rest of our, our days until you come. Help us to celebrate Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.